come now um, to the scripture. Let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Our Father in heaven, um, it is with joy, really, and anticipation, I trust, that we open the scripture. Um, Pray that we expect every time we open your book to hear you and also then to be blessed in the deepest and richest sense of that word, uh, to know that you have spoken to us, that you love us, that you've spoken to us, that you care for us in this way. So please enable us to listen well, to hear it, to believe it, and to trust you. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Ephesians in chapter 1. I want to read, as I did last Sunday, and we'll probably do the next Uh, These first 14 verses, Ephesians in chapter 1, please. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he, which we, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And then together we say, The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And we began this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, but really as we understand it, it was probably broader than that. It probably went not just to the church in Ephesus, but went around uh, to others as well. We noted that it was written by this man named Paul, who we knew once as Saul, who was a terrorist, a persecutor of the church. So we know that he went around trying to snuff out uh, Christianity as it was, and uh, that he would go to arrest, to imprison, and even have killed followers of Jesus. We see this in the scripture. We have evidence of it, of this one Stephen, of whose death he approved, killing he approved. 
um, an unlikely, we might say, convert, this one Saul of Tarsus, who now is Paul. And he's an apostle, that is, he's a sent out one. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, therefore he goes as an ambassador, really, of Jesus. He doesn't go in his own name, and the sense of being an apostle is, but he goes in the name of Jesus. And and even in this very uh, unique, in some sense, apostleship that he and others shared, we understand that when they wrote, they wrote the word of God. When they wrote, they wrote what God wanted us to know. And so this word that he writes uh, is infallible. It's truth. It doesn't have any errors in it. We can, we can trust it. He's an apostle of Jesus. And he says, by the will of God, it wasn't his idea, but it was a calling upon him uh, by God. It says it's written to saints, holy ones, really, and that is all believers. Um, saints, in Paul's understanding, aren't special Christians who live such a, uh, a righteous life that they have extra righteousness that they can share with the rest of the body of Christ. It isn't that. It isn't that they live such an intimate life that even after they die that we can we can ask them to intercede for us in various ways. It isn't that at all. Uh, that isn't necessary, of course. Because Jesus is all of that for us. He is our righteousness. He is our intercessor. So we're, we're fine there. We don't need anyone. This word saint is used of all believers. Every Christian is one who has been set apart. That's what this word means. Set apart by God for his glory. Um, saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful, that is, who are believers in Christ Jesus. And he declares to them in his opening word, grace and peace. That's what they'll receive as they come to read and understand and listen to what he's written. And they'll receive grace and this grace will lead them to peace. Peace with God, hopefully peace with each other. And so that's his design here. And, and he begins this section, uh, these, first, uh, these verses 3 through 14, as we've mentioned before, in the Greek New Testament is one sentence really. This was always the final exam on every Greek exam in seminary, which is why I memorized it years ago. I heard that and I thought, well, it isn't cheating to memorize a passage of scripture. And uh, it was helpful, I must confess, to defend some of the translation, but it was it was helpful. But uh, because it's so it's a bit complicated. It's as if he bursts it forth and, and here it comes. He just can't stop it. Just layers upon layers upon layers of this truth. Because what he's telling us is, is what he's showing us is that he's praising God here. And we mustn't ever miss that. That, 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 that what Paul is doing here is worshiping. He's blessing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking well of him. He's, he's praising him. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's thrilled at this point in time. Um, and, and, and he's doing so because he realizes that God has saved us. Believers, God has saved us himself and those to whom he writes, these who are saints and faithful. He realizes that, that, that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has worked in such a way to bring about the salvation of all believers. And so he spends his time not, not praising himself or them or praising, but he praises God because he's the one who deserves the praise. He's the one who has who saved and, and and through the salvation in Christ is are many many blessings as he puts it he says that that we're 
considered by God holy and blameless. And that's even our destiny. A day will come when it isn't, won't even simply be a declaration upon us that we're declared holy and blameless because of Jesus. But we will see him, as First John 3 says, and we'll be like him. Holy and blameless. Paul says, thanks. <laughs> what a blessing that is, that we're adopted as, as sons. That is, that we were estranged once. In fact, in chapter 2, he's going to say that by nature, we're children of wrath. But here he says, because of the work of God, we're children of God, <laughs> no longer under his wrath. And he is amazed by that. That, that, that he can ever be considered to be not only holy and blameless, but also a real, bona fide, genuine child of God. And, and there he is adopted into the family of God. And, and he goes on with this praise even more. Uh, because he says he is redemption. That is, he's been redeemed. That is, he's been purchased. That he was once a slave to sin, but now he's been set free from that because a price had been paid. And that price had been the very blood of the Son of God who gave himself for us. And, and thus that brings this redemption, forgiveness of our trespasses. And it brings to us, even by God's revelation and knowledge, that everything, the purpose of all of creation, is to be summed up or understood in Jesus. Says, we even know that. We even have that revelation. To even know that, that's what a great blessing. And then we have this inheritance in verse 11, you see. And, and the Spirit's been given to us to, to seal to us, or to, to, to apply to us all that Christ has done. What a wonderful blessing. And the Holy Spirit has been given to us now as a guarantee that all that's been promised will come to fruition uh, when Christ returns, you see. So we realize that this salvation is of God, the Father. It's eternal that he's chosen us before the foundations of the world. That is, before anything about us. But in his good pleasure, according to his will, he chose us in Christ, that is to receive the benefits of Jesus, that we would be holy and blameless, that he predestined us, he set out our destiny. In answer to the question, where are we going? Well, we're going, all those who have been chosen in Christ, going to be adopted, to be his, to be reconciled to him. That's our, our destiny, you see. And Paul realized, well, God set that out. The Father did that. And the Son then came to redeem by his blood, to give himself. And the Spirit came to seal and apply all of that. We realize that this is the work of God, first and foremost. It's his will. As, 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 a, as a refrain to every sort of section here, we, we find similar expressions. For instance, in verse 6, that the Father's work uh, is according to uh, the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace. And then in verse 12, we read that this is to the praise of his glory. And at the end, verse 14, after he speaks of the spirit, it's to the praise of his glory. See, this is the will of God. This is his good purpose. This is the counsel of his will. And it's all to the praise of his glory, not ours, 
But his, all that this has taken place is for the praise of his glory, to show him to be great, you see, that he can take a people like us and redeem us and cause us to be his. And, and we also see that this is, this, this is grace, you see. And in verse 2, grace and peace to you. In verse, in verse 6, it's to the praise of his glorious grace. In verse 8, it's this grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom uh, and insight. And always, the question of the person who receives grace is, why me? That's always the question of the one who receives grace. Why me? You realize there's nothing in me that would bring about this result, but I've received something that I didn't deserve. In fact, in this case, we know we deserve the opposite of it, yet we, we receive this wonderful grace. So the question of grace is, well, wow, why? Why me, really? And it's in love. Middle of verse, end of verse four. In love, he predestined us for adoptions of son, sons. And we, we said, well, how is it that he loved us? Why would he love us like that? Well, you remember what Moses wrote to the Israelites. He says, he loved you. And the question in Deuteronomy 7 was, why did he love them? And he said, well, because he loved you. <laughs> because he's a lover. That's what he does. It's who he is. Whether you're lovable or not, he is a lover. He's one who loves. And so in love, he did this. He wasn't pushing and scream, pulling, pushing and screaming about this. He didn't do it begrudgingly. He loved us. The Father loved us when he set out our destiny. He loved us when he chose us. He loved us when he sent his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You see, it wasn't that he was filled with wrath and the son sort of liked us and wanted to come and help us out. And so there was conflict between the father and the son. Yes, there was true wrath. But God, who is such that even he loves his enemies, loved us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. He sent his son. It's amazing. Paul doesn't even, I, I think he's, he just blasts this forth because he doesn't know what else to do with it other than just sort of lay it out there. And so, and so he does. Now, I'll, I'll be honest with you. What I'd really like to do now is just move on to the next passage. Um, not because, so there's some complications here, but not because of that, but so much as, it's, it's almost like, I don't know, there are times when I'm preaching a passage or, and I just I don't want to distract from its beauty. I just want to say, just, just listen to this. Just receive this. Just drink this in, you see. Sometimes I'm always, I'm worried when I preach, for instance, a psalm that, that I'll mess it up. Because it's so beautiful as it comes to us. I don't want to pick it apart so that at the end we just have this analytical understanding of this beautiful poem. And we miss the joy of it. So, so please, I, I don't, I, that's why I'd really like to move on. I, I'm not going to, of course. But, but I'd like to because of that. I don't want to mess this up. If I could encourage you to spend this year memorizing some verses of scripture, just Put this to memory. I mean, it, it just allow this in the middle of the night to just flow out of your mind. Or if you're in a difficult situation, if that middle of the night brings you next to a hospital bed, have this be going through your mind, you see. 
Don't stop necessarily to think about it. Just let it flow. Plus, Paul's going to unpack this, really. As we work the rest of our way through Ephesians, we're going to see a number of things very helpful. He's going to pray for them that they'd understand this in the next section and, and another section in chapter 3 as well. And, and um, he's going to teach them theologically what this means in chapters 2 and 3, particularly in 4 and through 6. He's going to talk to them and us about how this applies in the context of our lives in terms of how we live this out in a very practical way day after day after day. So he's going to unpack it. So in one sense, there isn't a lot of pressure uh, to... Uh, but but I really... I'm going to stop a while here on this passage to help myself and all of us to, to think it through. Because I know that there's a couple of words in this passage that is driven... Many to distraction rather than to praise. But they're given to us to enable us to praise. Not to be distracted. Not to argue. Not to debate. But so that we together will fall to our knees as the whole church and worship him. All right? And so if God will help me, people notice that I say that a lot and they wonder why I say it. Why would you wonder why I would say that? Uh, Because I need help. If God will help me, if God will help us to think this through together, I hope we can come to something that enables us, that's true to the scripture, enables us uh, to worship, to worship together. Does anyone want to hazard a guess as to these two words? Of course, it's where we're chosen and predestined uh, can create some sense of of difficulty. Um, I don't know. I, well, I do know why. Because it conflicts often with how we how we're constructed. Uh, the word of God very often goes against our intuition, how we think things should be. But again, I think we all understand that there is mystery in the gospel. There's mystery in the workings of God. And not only that... That there are many things that we just take that are rather inexplicable. Like the incarnation. God became man and dwelt among us. Now we declare that is true. We believe that is true. But how in the world did that happen? Well, there was a woman who ever had relations with a man. And she found herself with child by the Holy Spirit. Good. Good, got that, right? And God walked around. We believe that, you see. And he had two natures in him that weren't confused, but yet he only acted as he would act. One person, all right. And when he died, you see, The guilt of sinners was placed upon him so that he would exhaust the wrath of God for those sinners so that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. And we say, yes, of course. And he rose from the dead, proof, but still he goes to glory to rule and reign. And we go, okay, now we believe all that. We would die for that. Can you explain that? No, we declare it. 
Oh, we have explanations and we understand this and that about it. And, and it, it doesn't go against logic, the logic of God at least. But, but as we've laid out, but let's face it. That's, there's all kinds of things. And so this is simply one of them that we must take. Now, I'm going to go to a friend for some help. Um, I, I don't always like to go to this particular friend for help when uh, this subject comes up because he's, he's notorious. Name happens to be Calvin, and, uh, and and I don't like it. I especially don't like it when I'm referred to as a Calvinist because um, I, 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 that's just not the best expression for any of this uh, uh, because there's much or some in our friend that we wouldn't hold uh, to, especially as it, well, I won't get into the details, but this he's known for and lays out. And so I like to frame how I understand these words um, by how he frames it. So if I could just paraphrase, I'd read long quotes to you, but then I have to paraphrase after that anyway, but uh, because of some of the language. But, 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 but Calvin says this as he's coming into, in fact, the chapter title, what's the chapter? The chapter title of this particular chapter is chapter 21 in uh, book three of the Institutes of Christian Religion. Um, the title is wonderful. It's of the eternal election by which God has predestined some to salvation and others to destruction. There you go. So you know it's coming. But, but he, he begins by, by framing his discussion in a way that frankly has been helpful to me over the years and I know helpful to others as well as I've heard them talk and read them and so forth. Um, he says, you know, we must be careful because there's two types, you might say, of people who approach this. There's more than that, but two. And you heard Rick a couple of weeks ago. I did uh, when he was preaching and he talked about, he talked about we have to be careful of the ditches on the side of the road that we don't fall into one or the other. And, and uh, if I could, if I could paraphrase Calvin into Rick Pratt, it would be uh, there's two ditches and we don't want to fall into either one of them. There's the first ditch uh, are those who, who, who just simply love to speculate. They, they take uh, bits of scripture and they just speculate about it. And he says the danger there is when we get into these deeper subjects like election and predestination. He says you have to be careful because you might end up in a labyrinth or a maze out of which you cannot get. Right? You get in there because you see you've gone beyond that which has been revealed. And so he says take care about that. Here's the, a bit of the quote. He puts it. It is not right that man should with impunity pry into things which the Lord has been pleased to conceal within himself and scan that sublime eternal wisdom, which it is his pleasure that we should not apprehend, but adore. That's a fabulous expression. I tell that in marriage counseling to husbands all the time. <laughs> Don't. You won't understand her, but adore her, you see. Not apprehend, but adore. He said, let it therefore be our first principle that to desire any other knowledge of predestination than that which is expounded by the word of God is no less infatuated than to walk where there is no path or to seek light in darkness. His point is be careful. We love to speculate on things about which the Bible gives us no direction. And so be careful. Don't go beyond it. 
But then he says there's another ditch as well. And that ditch is the ditch of, because it's so difficult and so complicated, it might raise some feathers uh, amongst some, that we have to be careful, and so we shouldn't talk about it at all. He said, no, 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 no. When the Holy Spirit has written about it and given us information about it, we cannot neglect it. For if we do, we'll miss the blessing of what he intends or we'll simply disrespect the Holy Spirit by saying we can suppress that which he's written about and neither of which we want to do. He puts it like this. He's, and this would be true for any subject, really. He said, allow the Christian to unlock his mind and ears to all the words of God which are addressed to him, provide it he do it with moderation. Here's Calvin's definition of moderation in this context. He says that whatever the Lord shuts his sacred, I'm sorry, that whenever the Lord shuts his sacred mouth, he also desists from inquiry. The best rule of sobriety in reading the scripture is not only in learning to follow whatever God leads, but also when he makes an end of teaching to cease also from wishing to be wise. Do you catch that? He says, listen, there's something here for us. And it's wonderful, else the Holy Spirit wouldn't have given it to us. It would be disrespectful for him for us to disregard it, and we'd miss the blessing. But be careful. These are deep matters. These are matters about which God is revealing himself. And so just be careful with it. Don't go beyond it. Grab hold of what's there. You may not comprehend all of it, but adore what he's given to us. Adore it. That's what I see Paul doing here. If I could go to another friend, John Piper, a Baptist friend, um, he puts it like this. He says, not all things are good for us to know. And so God has not revealed them to us. And there are some things good for us to know, even when we can't fully explain them. There are some things that are good for us to know that he fully explains. I suppose we could put in the middle of all that. But, but, but Piper now is trying to, to, to get at the ends of this. And he says, be careful. There, there are some things that God hasn't revealed to us. And there are some things he's revealed to us, but, but we can't get it all at once or maybe completely ever. But he still gives it to us. For instance, he, he bases that, Piper does, on this passage in Deuteronomy 29. Many of us know this verse, De- Deuteronomy 29, 29. It's very helpful that it's 29, 29. We can remember that. And so he says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There's some things he doesn't reveal. Now, I could ask the question, this might be over-speculating, I might be violating Calvin's rule here, but why are some things secrets? Well, My suspicion is, it's because God is God and we're not. And he could tell us, but we wouldn't get it. In the analogy of God talking to us and us talking to our dogs, we're the dog, right? I mean, there's certain things. I don't really understand animals, so go with me on this. But there's certain things I suppose your dog gets and there are other things your dog doesn't get because your dog's a dog, you know? You could share your feelings with your dog about how, but it's probably not going to work. You share your food, it probably will. But so uh, there's, there's things because we're the creature, you know that. He's the creator, 
right? We're the soldier. He's the general. Uh, we're the citizen. He's the king. I mean, there's things that we won't see, we won't understand. So the secret things belong to the Lord. But the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So there's a practical application to God telling us what he tells us so that we'll get along with it, so we'll do it, you see. And so we, we, realize, we realize that. For instance, Jesus says in Acts 1-7, he says in other places as well, that no one, not even the Son of Man, knows the date of the hour when he'll return. How many of your books have been written about the return of Jesus? When it's going to happen throughout all the centuries? The speculation goes on and on and on, you see. But of course, it's foolishness because we won't know that uh, at all. The James chapter 4 says to us that we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Does God know what's going to happen tomorrow? Yes. Does he tell us what's going to happen tomorrow? No. There's some things that aren't revealed, and so we should leave them there. Of course, the classic text we, we know from 1 Corinthians in chapter uh, 13 and, 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 and verse uh, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall full, know fully, even as I have been fully known. You know, the, right now, especially, we don't see things as clearly as, as we will. And so this expression of Calvin, it's not right that man should with impunity pry into things which the Lord has been pleased to conceal within himself and, and scan that sublime eternal wisdom, which is his pleasure, that we should not apprehend, but adore. See, we need to receive them as revealed. We need to adore them because they're true and they're from God for us. And we need to be blessed by them and receive the benefit of them, even though it may be that we cannot, at a particular moment in time, understand it thoroughly and have all of our questions answered about it. If I could quote Piper at length, he says, one of the implications of this point is that we will not always know how some particular doctrine in the Bible is good for us, We Americans are especially pragmatic and demanding. If we don't see the payoff of a doctrine immediately, we tend to ignore it. We're like foolish children when we do that. Every parent knows that children must be made to learn things without knowing how they will someday be useful. We teach them the particular of table manners when they're small, for example, so that later they will be able to navigate every social situation with grace. I need to ponder that for a moment. I don't think that's... Happened, uh, but and they don't have a clue why you're telling them to hold a spoon in a certain way or keep their elbows off the table. Uh, they have to take your word for it. The sun is standing still. The earth is a ball. The green vegetables will make you healthy, and the little bag of rat poison will kill you. If children know these things before they know why or how, imagine the distance between us and God, and how much we may have to know without knowing how it will help us. The effect on our lives of what we know are always more than we know or can explain. Sometimes we might simply learn something because God says it's true. Then later we may be able to see how the knowledge protected us or strengthened us or humbled us or purified us or guided us or enabled us to see things that are true. 
The issue boils down to trust. Do we trust that God has revealed what is good for us to know? Very often we know that he has done it, even if we don't know how he has done it. Now that I'm advancing in years, people ask me interesting questions. One of the questions is, how has your preaching changed over the last 30 plus years? And I've given some thought to that, and here's the answer, in part at least. That I still say the same things, but now I understand them better. That's really true. I've gone back and at least read sermon outlines of sermons I preached a long time ago. And I say, hmm, I still say that. Many of you stopped taking notes about 10 years ago. But I know what it means more now. And so these things that we take and we want to kick against, better for us to quietly take them in, to allow them to live in us, and to see how it is that they work in us over time. These things that might be difficult, these things that we might not understand, these things that perhaps growing up in another tradition we had been taught aren't true at all. But yet now we see them and we say, well, it's here. How can we explain this passage otherwise than before the foundations of the world, that is, before anything was? That in the gracious Working of God, gracious meaning, he didn't see me do anything that was worthy of it in the future, but simply by his own will, for the praise of his glory, that he chose me, us, believers, to receive the benefits of Christ, and that he predestined us to adoption as sons. And that Jesus came and redeemed that we might have forgiveness. And that the Holy Spirit of God came to seal all of this to us. That we might have the guarantee that all that was promised will come to pass. Now, that begs a number of questions, isn't it? Well, does that mean, then, that God chose some and not, not others? And yeah, but, but doing away with the doctrine of election doesn't do away with the problem. Because if we posit this, that God wants all to be saved, and he could save all, but he doesn't, then why? Well, well, some might say, well, because he doesn't want to violate our free will. But why is our free will so sacrosanct? I mean, Tim Keller, if I could find the quote here in all my little musings, um, puts it like this. He says, why is this freedom of choice so 
sacrosanct. I try to honor my child's freedom of will, but not if I see it's a, he's about to be killed by it. Why can't God insult our freedom of will for a moment and save us for eternity? Will we really be angry with him about that? And then we do have to ask the question about our wills, don't we? How free are they really? I mean, I have to be honest with you. If you put a bowl of chocolate ice cream in front of me and a book of and a, and a, and a bowl of lemon sherbet in front of me and say, pick one, I'm free, but I'll always pick the chocolate. I'll never pick the lemon. I mean, that's just the way it is. Why? Not because somebody has a gun at my head, but because it's just who I am. I, I'm free to choose on the basis of my inclinations. Now, if you say, I'll give you $20 if you pick the lemon, I might. Because another thing has come into play, and it affects my inclinations. For a buck, no. For 20 maybe. I'm sure we can negotiate a price. But you see, I'm free based on who I am. The question is, what has sin done to our wills? That's the difficulty, you see. Sin has affected us. The scripture says in Genesis chapter 6, thoughts and inclinations of human beings were evil continuously. And Jeremiah 17 says, our, our hearts are deceitful above all things who can trust them. Right? And Jesus said, the men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. He said, if you sin, you're a slave to sin. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. The problem, you see, with sin is it changes our inclinations and it changes our inclinations in such a way as that we choose to sin. That is to choose to go the way that isn't God. So how could we ever trust him unless he involves himself powerfully, uniquely in our lives? Now, I don't get why he does in some and doesn't in others. But I do know this. Number one, God is perfect. And number two, any type of mercy and grace that I could posit could not be greater than the mercy and grace that God extends. So his way has got to be better. And so I'll be honest. I once sat in a room with one I think is a great theologian named J.I. Packer. And ask him, I didn't ask him, someone asked him the question about why God chooses some and not others. And you know what this eminent theologian's answer was? I don't ask that question. I mean, the answer is for his glory, so he can show his mercy and all of that. We know the that of it, we don't know the why of it or the how of it necessarily. But, but he just said, I don't ask that question because... That would take me into speculation in places where I, I can't go. I just know this. This is what's been revealed. So I enjoy it. But in Calvin's terms, that he adores it. Well, does this mean then that we're not responsible for our actions? Of course not. The Bible teaches amazingly so that God is sovereign over all things. And yet at the same time, we're responsible for our actions. Does it mean that our decisions don't count? No, our decisions do count. They're real genuine decisions. They're real genuine choices. But God is sovereign over all things. You say, well, how do those two mix? I don't know. But then again, I'm not God. Somehow he can make this work because he's God, you see. 
does this mean that, that we don't have to obey him? No, of course not. In fact, the opposite is true. As we work our way through Ephesians, what, what Paul says is that, that here's what's happened because of the work of Christ. Now therefore obey. In fact, in Colossians in chapter 3, uh, Paul puts it like this. He says, therefore, as God's elect, holy and beloved, put on compassion and mercy and kindness and all this. Because it's true of you, because he saved you, then he's changed your inclinations. The lemon of my disdain is now the joy of my existence, right? Because I've been changed. So something's new and something's different. So of course, I'll desire at least to obey. And when I don't, I'll be remorseful and I'll, I'll confess it and I'll ask him to help me and all of that. So you say, well, must we believe? Well, of course we must believe. We're justified by faith. The question is, do you thank your faith because, do you thank yourself for your faith because it has made you elect? Or do you thank God for your election that has brought you to faith? You see, it's, just, it's, it's that, you see. How does all that work? I don't know. No one does. The question is, is it true? Well, I think so. Why is it here? So I'll worship. That's why it's here. So I'll join Paul when he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus, you see. So, so we, we worship. So we obey. And so we have great certainty of our salvation. When I was putting all this together, I thought of a hymn and one particular expression in that hymn that is one that I've said before, so if you've been paying attention over the years, you know this is true. It's one of my favorite poetic lines in all of hymns. And I didn't realize until this morning at about 5.30 when I was singing through the bulletin in the sanctuary all by myself that we were singing that hymn this morning. Sorry, Tyler. Uh, The expression, tune my heart to sing thy grace. And you see, what I realize is that when grace is being sung and I join in, the choir director grimaces <laughs> because I'm out of tune. And of course I'm out of tune. Grace doesn't make sense to me. I, I, I want to say that I, I need to do something in order to earn it. And so even now I have to confess that there are times when I sin and I think, well, before I don't really think this because I know it's false. So I don't even go there consciously probably. But, but what happens is, is I, 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 I tend to try to do something really good and then deal with the whole sin thing. You know, say, I, I need to prove myself. I need to say, I know I sinned here, but, but I did this really good. Doesn't that count for this? You know, why? Well, I'm just completely out of tune with grace. And so the prayer, my prayer as I read Ephesians 1, anything really, is that God would tune my heart. He'd tune my heart. Let me receive it. Don't let me kick against it. Let me receive it. Let it sit. So he'll show me over time the wonders 
of his grace. Paul does that. The next section, he prays for them that they might know the hope to which they've been called, the riches of their glorious inheritance in the, faith, in, in, in the saints and the power that is towards them. In chapter 3, he'll pray that they, they come to really know the love of God. And so I pray for me and for us that God would tune our hearts to sing his grace. Let's pray. Father, may I begin there that that would be our prayer this morning that you would in fact tune our hearts to sing your grace. Help us, I pray. That we might listen to the scripture, that we might take it as revealed, that we might believe what is here, and that we might worship you. So please, I pray, overcome my, our resistance to your truth and enable us to embrace it. And Father, I pray on this day for those who find themselves in difficulty, uh, many in our congregation, I suppose, various and sundry difficulties that you would impress upon them, whether their trouble be uh, relational, whether their trouble be physical, whether their trouble be financial, whether their trouble be with their own emotions, whether their trouble be with temptation, whether their trouble be with particular sins, whether their trouble be with doubt that you, God, would work in them to assure them that you are the God of salvation, that you are the one in whom they trust and that it isn't about them, but it's about your, it's not about their ability, but your ability. It's not about they're holding on, but you're holding on to them. Be with them, I pray. Pray for Brad Kaler that you would work in his body to bring healing and strength. And of course, we pray for Sue uh, Washburn on this morning that you would be with her. Um, and Rick and their family, as they minister to Sue and uh, Father, I pray that as the sedation um, is taken away, that we will find Sue. So I pray that you would bring healing there. Um, Father, we think of just our own lives, our own uh, government, and we pray that you would bring wisdom and guidance there that even through struggles of disagreement and ideology that you would cause uh, our federal government to do uh, what is best for those they serve and our states and local governments as well. And Father, for our church, that you would enable us to live in the understanding of what you've done for us in our salvation, in its planning and in its administration, and under your sovereign rule over all things for your glory and the good of your people. May we adore you. In Jesus' name.